Today we're going to finish our look at Romans chapter 6. We covered the first half of chapter 6 last week, so we're going to be in the latter half today. Our text is going to be Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. We'll read it together um, in just a second. And just to rehearse again a little bit of, of, of what got us to this point in the letter, um, I, I don't mind repeating this uh, week in and week out because our, our aim in this study this year is to come away from Romans understanding Romans better. And the best way you can understand Romans better in many respects is through repetition uh, of, of the flow of it. And so uh, Paul is, is in this letter. It, it, his aim is to explain the full scope of the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. He opened the letter in the, in the very first verse of the letter, basically making clear that this letter is going to be about the gospel of God. And he spent the first three chapters, uh, up to the very end of chapter 3, sort of uh, demonstrating our, our need for Christ, our, uh, our, our need for the good news of the gospel, because he makes so clear in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, uh, the fact of our guilt, of our separation from God because of our, because of our sin, because of our, not just of sin that we inherit from Adam, but, but as soon as we are old enough and capable of moral action, we act it out. We, we, we act out willful rebellion against God. It's like Romans chapter 3, verse 10, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Everyone has turned to his own way. Away from God, going, you know, not, not pursuing God at all. That's what we are by nature. And, and, and chapter 3, toward the end of that chapter, as he was sort of drawing that first section to a close, like he said in, in chapter 3, verse 20, that because of our sin, because of our guilt, he says that every mouth will be stopped before God and the whole world will be held accountable to him. And, uh, and that there's no, there's basically, he says at the end of that, there's just no way no amount of, of good works or moral effort that we can give uh, in order to, to right the wrong or to, 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 to justify ourselves before God, to make ourselves right before God. That's, that's the point of these first three chapters. And that extended discussion about our sin and separation from God, it set the stage for the next segment of the letter, which uh, was about the good news of the gospel. And Paul's well, he began it at the end of chapter 3, um, and, and it carried on, but his, his, uh, his explanation of the work that Jesus came to provide for sinners, uh, what was that, namely a, a perfect life of obedience to God uh, as our substitute before God in order to provide the righteousness that we owe to him, he provided it for us, and also giving his own life over to death on the cross as a payment for our sin, to bear the, the judgment, the righteous judgment that we deserve. To put it in the words of Romans 3.24, he was put forward to be a propitiation for our sins. That a propitiation means to, 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 to bear and to satisfy and to turn away the wrath of God against our sin. Uh, he, he explained that, and then he spent the next two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, showing how 
because, because Jesus has done everything necessary for a sinner, any sinner, to stand forgiven of their sins, righteous before God, since Jesus has done everything necessary for that already, then the way for us to stand justified before God is not through any moral effort of our own, but merely through faith alone. Faith alone in the work that Jesus has done for us, faith alone in the promise He has made to us that we can be forgiven through that work. That's the promise that was Paul demonstrated in chapter 4 was even true. It's been true for the whole Bible story. It goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he spent two chapters explaining and defending that. He was talking in those two chapters about our status before God. Our status. Uh, and our status before God, he demonstrates in these two chapters, is determined by whether we are in Adam, which we are by birth, which all people are by birth. And that's going to be characterized by sin and rebellion and contentment uh, in ourselves, in the way we are, I'm fine, I love myself, I love my ways. That's in Adam. Or your status is determined either by that, which you are by nature, or you're in Christ, which, you are, which anyone could be by faith alone. Uh, and that's going to be characterized not by contentment with yourselves, but discontentment with yourself and repentance of your sins and trusting only the work of Jesus Christ in your place. Two chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, all about justification, our status before God. Our status being sins forgiven, righteous before God. Uh, righteous before God, not because I, I am and have lived a righteous life, but because Jesus did perfectly. And, and the Bible teaches the word that he uses in, in these chapters is the righteousness of Jesus is counted to us, imputed to us, uh, reckoned to us, credited to us. That's the language he uses. The la and, and that's why when you come to chapter 5, the, we won't go through this whole chapter, but the language you find in chapter 5 is just so fixed and certain. Just a, just a few verses in the first half of the chapter, but like verse 1, Again, it's presuming, by the way, we, the, the, that we've repented and believed, having been justified by faith. It's, it's, all this is assuming a person has repented and believed. But notice that upon that, the certainty, we have peace with God. Verse 2, this grace in which we stand. Verse 9, we have been justified by His blood. We will be saved from the wrath of God. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God. And it just goes on and on and on and on like that. There's no wiggle room in that. I mean, there's just in Christ, a sinner's, by repentance and faith, a sinner's status before God is fixed and certain for all eternity. To quote Martin Luther again, or to paraphrase him, by faith alone in Jesus, we can be, although in reality at the same time we are sinners, we are counted righteous before God at the same time. Because now, for a person who repents and believes, Christ has been our substitute, that when God considers you, when God considers me, He, he sees Christ's life as ours, 
and he sees Christ's death as ours. So it's like, it's like uh, it, this, that's not something that ebbs and flows. That's, that, that, that's, that's the new fixed status for all eternity for believers. It's not contingent upon anything uh, in us, as in our obedience, how, how good we can make ourselves. It's not contingent upon that. It's not dependent upon that because it's already been done. It's, it's like, it's the way Paul puts it in, in Colossians 3, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden. All right? Now, we're in chapter 6. That was just rehearsal of what we've already seen. So we're in chapter 6. And Paul knew that that explanation of the good news of the gospel would invite criticism, objection, would raise questions, curiosities, namely questions as it pertained to how it would impact our ongoing practical everyday living, our obedience, our pursuit of holiness. Um, in everyday life. And the objection would be precisely this. He knew that this would be the objection. If our status is already eternally, immovably fixed in Christ as righteous, perfectly righteous, if, if our status is already fixed eternally in that way, then what possible motivation do we then have to live holy lives? And he, he sets up the objection. He, he's, a good, he's a good arguer because he sets, up the, he sets up the objection in as strong a way as possible. Like, he's going to state the objection in a way that the objector would say, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because he says, like he already said back in chapter 5, verse 20, that for those in Christ... Because our status is so fixed, we're not in Adam, we're in Christ. Because that is so fixed, he says in chapter 5, verse 20, that even when our sin increases, grace abounds all the more. It's not like you are, you are in Christ by faith and you are forgiven, but man, if you keep messing up, forget about it. Sorry, you messed it up. No, he knows that if we're in Christ, even, even from that point on, when if... If we continue and we sin, that, that no matter how much we sin, if we re, when we're repentant before God, His grace is always going to abound greater than our sin was. Now, that is precisely what brought the objection in chapter 6, verse 1. And the person hearing that is going to scratch their head and say, okay, if the more, if, if, if I, no matter how much I sin, grace is going to abound more, well then, Shouldn't I, is that saying I should sin more so that grace would abound more? Like, the objection, that I, I mean, I, I, get, I get how that somebody might think that, but that objection is able to see only law with consequences attached to it for disobedience as the only effective motivation for holiness and purity or per, the pursuit of it. Uh, but Paul transitions in, in these chapters, beginning in chapter 6, to show not only how justification and our status before God is, is by free grace alone, 
but our sanctification, our ongoing growth in holiness and obedience is also by God's free grace alone and not our, um, our effort to earn anything from God by law-keeping with the threat, if I don't obey, there's going to be consequences. No, it's by free grace. He began to defend that idea last week in the first half of chapter 6. Uh, and he's going to continue in this second half. Notice how he begins, you see how he's doing it. He begins our, our passage for today in verse 15 by repeating the original objection. Verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? How, he's, he's raising that again. It's like the objection is still saying, like, how is grace a better foundation how is free grace a better foundation and a better motivator for holiness and obedience in daily life? How is that a better motivator than, than law and the threat of consequences if you don't do it? In the first half of the chapter, he gave two reasons why grace is better. Because what we said last week, because of grace, we are dead to sin and alive in the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, and we were dead to self and united to Christ. Those are the two reasons he gave in the first half of the chapter. In our passage today, he's going to give two more reasons. Um, and if you're taking notes, here, here's, I'll go ahead and say what those, those two are, and uh, then we'll read the chapter in just a minute. Um, he's going to give two, two motivations, or two reasons why grace is a better motivator than law. We'll see the first one in verses 15 to 20, um, which is, Believers by grace have been given a new ability. Believers by grace have been given a new ability. That's what we'll flesh out in verses 15 to 20. And then second, in the last few verses, verses 21 to 23, believers by grace have been given a new outcome. A new outcome. Just two points, two motivations in our sanctification. A new ability, one that law can't provide but that grace can a new ability, and a new outcome, one that obedience to the law cannot achieve, but free grace grants. So that being said, let's read our passage together, and then we'll dive into it and try to see these things clearly in it. Romans 6, 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Either of sin, so you're a, either a slave of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, that is, a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's, that's an important distinction we're going to flesh out. Slave to sin or slave to obedience. But thanks be to God, verse 17, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Lord, it, just reading it, it's not to us the easiest passage to understand. So it is for that reason that we ask that you would give us minds to understand it as best we can. And help us to understand what Paul is saying, what you would have us to understand in what he said. And would you give us not just minds to understand it, but then hearts to receive it, see it as important, eternally important, more important than anything else we might think about. Would you give us hearts to embrace it and wills to obey it? His command here is, is again, to present ourselves for righteousness. That's a command. We want to understand how grace is a better motivator for that and 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 not just motivator but provider for that. Give me the help that I need to teach, and would you please give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I've already pointed out what I think we see in this passage, so let's jump in and take a closer look. Let's look at verse carefully at verses 15 to 20, where I believe Paul demonstrates that believers, by grace, not law, have a new ability. Think about that with me. So like I pointed out earlier, Paul begins our passage in verse 15, restating the objection that he anticipated all the way back in in verse 1. Worded a little differently, but the same basic objection that there's the objector cannot thing is thinking there's no way that free, free, unmerited um, grace, despite our sin and our guilt and our propensity to sin, how free grace, unmerited free grace, could just all of a sudden produce an obedient and sanctified life. How does that work? That's what he's saying. But Notice that Paul answers the objection here in verse 15 in the same way he did earlier in the chapter. By no means. And that's about as strong as you could state it in the Greek language at the time. But how is he going to answer it? Because he, he's not going to just leave it at by no means. He can't just say, hear the objection go, nuh-uh. It's not what he's doing. What does he say? Look at what he says in verse 16. Do you not know? that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are either slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. What is he saying in that question? I think what he's doing in that question is inviting the objector to look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. So in this question, he's just reestablishing the ground rules to weigh the evidence. He's saying that if our actions demonstrate to whom we are slaves, either of sin or of obedience, if our actions demonstrate to whom we are slaves, what does the evidence show? Those who have believed that salvation is by free grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who appears to be their master? Uh, 
Are, are, are they obedient servants of sin, or are they obedient servants of righteousness, slaves of, of, of obedience and righteousness? What's his answer? He begins in verse 17. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, the standard of teaching to which you were committed is the, the gospel. That's what they committed themselves to, to Christ and the gospel. And they have become o- obedient to the heart, to Christ and his gospel and his word. Now, Paul begins here establishing a very important principle that we need to recognize. We need to recognize it because of our own sin and the weakness of our own flesh. Um, we might, I, if, if I read something like this, and I know some of you and I know my own heart, sometimes we might feel more like, slaves to sin than we do slaves to obedience. I mean, like, we might, we might reason to ourselves that, man, in, in what way am I a slave to obedience, a slave to righteousness? Man, I just, I feel so still prone to sin and so prone to waywardness. In what way? So I'm, he's, he's going to start fleshing out a principle here that we're going to see in due time. We need to see carefully, though, how he defines some things before we get to that principle. Um, Notice, let's think about what he's saying. Because he says, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to obedience. He says, thanks be to God, you're a slave of obedience. So let's, even if you don't feel like it, let's see how he defines it, and maybe we we can understand it a little bit better. What is a slave to obedience? Because he says in verse 17, thanks be to God, you're not slaves of sin anymore. Okay, well, then what does it mean to be a slave of obedience? Notice in verse 17 that phrase. Zoom in on that phrase, obedient from the heart. Obedient from the heart. You have become obedient from the heart. That is the key distinction Paul makes for identifying those who are slaves to obedience. It's not just outward obedience. It's obedience from the heart. In other words, obedience from the heart would mean it's, 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 an, aware, it's an awareness and, and a wholehearted and willing agreement out of love for Christ that obedience to God and obedience to His will, that is good. And that's right. Uh, and I have a desire to do it. And, and I don't want to not do it. And when I don't do it, I want to repent. I want to do What is God's will and God's word? That's obedience from the heart. That is an ability. Okay? This is his point here. That's an ability that you don't have apart from Christ. That's an ability that the law cannot give you. Um, That is an ability that mere law-keeping can't give us. That's that's something that, that, as we saw last week, only the Holy Spirit in us can give us. For Paul, looking, when he says, okay, let's examine the evidence... Looking at the evidence is more than seeing what outward action was performed, um, but what produced it inwardly. Begrudging obedience, begrudging obedience is not the same thing as obedience from the heart. The first, begrudging obedience, only appears to be obedience. The second actually is. 
And Paul is simply, when he's making this point, he's simply following Jesus on that point. Think about what Jesus had to say to the Jewish leaders of his day. Just one example from the, from the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Certainly the Jewish leaders appeared to be outwardly moral and righteous. He, one time would call them whitewashed tombs. They did look whitewashed. They did look white and clean. But he said, you know, for example, the, the, the Jewish leaders of that day, they prayed. So they prayed a lot. They prayed according to God's will, right? God, said, God commanded them to pray. They prayed. But where did they pray? They prayed on the street corners. They prayed out loud. Uh, why did they do that? That's the key. Why was he bringing that up? Why were you doing that? For men's applause, right? So it was mere outward-looking obedience, but that went no deeper than self-love. So one thing is, being a, being a slave of obedience is marked by being obedient from the heart. That's, that's a mark of being a slave of obedience. It's the ability to obey from the heart. Not because you have to. You want to, right? Now, there's another aspect to it. There's a, there's a, there's a second aspect. The first aspect was what the phrase being a slave to obedience does mean. Name, namely, it means coming from a, an obedient heart that wants to, to, to glorify God, wants to obey, knows it's right and good and desires it. The second aspect he's going to point out here is going to be a careful clarification of what being a slave of obedience is not, what it does not mean. And namely, it does, being a slave of obedience and being a slave of righteousness does not mean sinlessness. It does not mean you never sin. Where do we see that here? Because at first, it may seem like that's not what he's saying. Look at verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So being a slave of righteousness is just an interchangeable term with slave of obedience. And right there, he seems to be defining it as being set free from sin. You're free from sin. But does that mean sinlessness, free from sin? No, for a couple of reasons. One, Scripture from beginning to end could not be any clearer that sinlessness was only true of one, Jesus Christ. Uh, and so it couldn't be true of any of us. But second, look down at verse 20. He says, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Well, that also appears to be saying that unbelievers can do no good thing. But we know that that's also not true to some extent, right? It's not as if there is no common grace in the world from which otherwise ungodly people can do noble, courageous, and good works. Let me just give you an example. This past summer, we were in Los Angeles for the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Aaron Wine and I were walking out of our, our uh, hotel. Our hotel was like right across from Disneyland. Like, so it was a crowded place. And we were walking out of our hotel, and we noticed there was a lady in a, a motorized wheelchair here waiting to cross the street at the intersection. And there was also a big truck coming right here who was going to make that turn. He did, the truck driver did not see that she had gone out 
in her wheelchair and when he made that turn and he hit her, knocked her chair over and was, was bad, was bad. Like he was, she was, no, I'm not going to go into detail. What happened in that moment? Busy people, we're in L.A., so at Disneyland, it wasn't a whole bunch of Southern Baptist deacons on that street corner, right? But when this crowd of people saw that woman who had just been hit by that truck and, and the action was still going on, every person on that street corner sprung into action, telling the driver, stop the truck, coming to that woman trying to speak to her, trying to comfort her. Somebody's over here calling 911. Everybody on that street corner is coming to the aid of that precious image bearer whom none of us knew, right? And, and, and the whole point is, certainly, all of those actions that I just described of otherwise ungodly people, none of those actions were gaining any kind of merit before God. That's true. But it is good, it is good to stop everything else you were doing to rush to try to save the life of a precious image bearer. That's a good thing. If you want to, if you want to quibble that, like, would it be better if nobody did that? Like, it's, it's a good act. And so my point is, when he says in verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, it does not mean free, free from righteousness doesn't mean that you did nothing good ever in your whole life. That you didn't love your mother. Like, it's not saying that. There aren't absolute terms such that no sin is, is ever committed or nothing good is ever done. What he's saying when he says in verse 18, you've been set free from sin. And in verse 20, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's the opposite. What he's saying is the trajectory for the person who's an, uh, either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience and righteousness, it's characterized by the trajectory of their life. The trajectory of, a, of the life of a person who is a slave to sin is the trajectory is unrepentant sin. The, the characteristic of a person who is slave to obedience and righteousness is not just the ability to obey from the heart, but it, it's a trajectory of obedience. It's a trajectory, not sinlessness. It's just a trajectory of their life. And by the way, to get even more nitty-gritty, obedience from the heart, you do know, would include confessing your sins to one another. That is a command of the New Testament, so it can't mean sinlessness. Otherwise, you'd never be able to obey that command. When I say trajectory i say that because that's what verse 19 is saying that for both unrepentant sin will always lead to more he said the way he says in verse 19 is lawlessness leads to more lawlessness and and conversely a person who's a slave to obedience and is obedient from the heart that's going to lead to more righteousness leading to sanctification so bring all that together what does it mean to be a slave of obedience, which Paul twice calls being a slave to righteousness, or that he calls in verse 22 being a slave to God? It is a person 
who from the heart desires to be obedient to God and His Word. And while not sinless, strives to be obedient. Readily confesses sin. Grows over time. That is an ability within the believer that is empowered by the Holy Spirit alone and is a far better motivator to grow in sanctification than mere unaided law-keeping. No matter the, the, the threat and consequence, then that could ever be. And that helps us to understand this important principle that I, was, that I mentioned earlier. And that is anybody who um, either is an unbeliever and wants to rely on their, their good works to get them. You go to a lot of funerals in the deep south, and that's what they sound like. So-and-so was a good person, and they're in heaven now, you know? There's plenty of people out there that are not believers and they're just very moralistic people. This is going to be true for that kind of person. It's also going to be true for the, for the person who professes to be a believer but still who has a very legalistic bent of mind and so has trusted in Christ but still implicitly operates as if I've got to earn something through my goodness. Here's the principle for those who rely on their record of obedience for their confidence before God that person will either A, water down what counts as sin so that their record appears better than it is, at least in their own mind, or B, they will become so overcome by their awareness of their sin that they fall into despair. And both are misunderstandings of the gospel. The first the one that waters down what I count as sin so that, at least in my own mind, my record seems better, that one sees no need for Christ and His work on the cross. Because sin is so minimized, no atonement is seen as necessary. But the second forgets the work of Christ, who already paid for all of our failings on the cross and already gave us a perfect record of righteousness when we repented and believed. And that's why the free grace of the gospel is a better motivator to obedience than mere law and is a better basis for our sanctification for two reasons. One, it's a better basis for our sanctification because remembering the work of Christ for us, that enables obedience from the heart to be a joy. It enables obedience from the heart to be a joy rather than an anxious mountain to climb without ever slipping. But two, it's a better motivator to obedience because it provides us a new ability by the Holy Spirit to obey from the heart that we otherwise could and would never have. But that new ability given to us by the Holy Spirit to obey Christ from the heart is not the only motivation here. Uh... It's not the only motivation that's given here to, to be a better, uh, better at, than, than law uh, in, in, in order to, to accomplish our sanctification. I think having demonstrated the, 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 um, the new ability that we have to obey from the heart, he now, in the final verses of the chapter, reminds us of the new outcome that we have as believers at the conclusion of our lives of obedience, though not earned by our lives of obedience. Let's think about the new outcome. So Paul spent the bulk of this 
his time in this second half of the chapter showing how believers have a new ability by the grace of God to obey Christ from the heart and to grow increasingly in sanctification into Christ's likeness. His stress was on the ability that we have because we're now slaves of righteousness in Christ and the Holy Spirit is committed to making us more like Christ. But here at the end of the chapter, he switches his emphasis just slightly to consider these same things from a different vantage point which is considering the outcome of the new ability to obey from the heart, which we see in verses 21 to 23. So let's look at those three verses quickly as we come to a a conclusion. Um, Paul reminds believers, beginning in verse 21, he he, he reminds believers of the outcome they have before, that, that they had before they came to Christ. He says in verse 21, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. So basically, he's saying to those believers, you know, considering the outcome of walking outside of Christ, that it is shameful, that it ends in death, which is eternal death and separation from God. He says, if if you remember that, that is a good motivation, even by free grace, to continue walking in obedience to God. Because a, a person in whom is the Holy Spirit and in whom, to whom the Holy Spirit has given the desire to obey from the heart, that believer will, will not simply shudder at the thought of being outside of Christ and, and, and the eternal death that would be faced there. But they will also, in real time and space, shudder uh, at, at, at the, and not desire the shame they would feel of walking in disobedience. And unrepentant disobedience. It's like David in Psalm 32 when he was walking in unrepentant sin. And he said, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, all, through my groaning all day long. Obviously, bones wasting away wasn't literal. David was a strapping man. His bones weren't literally wasting away. But figuratively, of the shame he felt over his unrepentant sin, it's as if he was withering away. And he continued in Psalm 32, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. First of all, only a true believer would feel that. A person still dead in their trespasses and sins, it wouldn't bother them in the slightest. Second, a true believer never desires to feel this way, which is one outcome that is a good motivator to walk in obedience. That's his point in verse 21. But in verse 22... He mentions a a second outcome that is a a motivator to obedience better than mere law. Look at verse 22 again. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now that's just a restatement of something he said in verse 19 where he said that righteousness leads to more sanctification and obedience from the heart begets more obedience from the heart. And the real, the real life outcome that as we walk in obedience from the heart with our spirit-given ability to do that is that sanctification grows. And more Christ-likeness is gained so that walking contrary to Christ becomes even less desirable and walking faithfully with Christ becomes more so. But if you look at the last bit of that verse, of verse 22, it hints at a third outcome to obedience that verse 23 climactically makes more explicit. He says at the end of verse 22, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now that isn't saying that our sanctification earns or merits 
that eternal life at the end of it, but only that eternal life will be looked forward to as the blessed end of, of a life of obedience. And what verse 23 teaches us is, is that because that, it, it, it is that because that eternal life is a free gift to us. It is all the more motivating to joyful obedience that it's a free gift to us than trying to earn it through law and consequences. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free grace is a better foundation and a better motivation for godliness. Well, Paul has set a good, a good foundation for us in chapter 6 uh, for understanding what sanctification and, and ongoing following of Christ is going to look like uh, for all those justified in Christ. The basis of it, which you made clear in here, is, is that we have an unshakable foundation of peace with God through Christ our substitute. That's the only basis that can produce joyful obedience from the heart. That's the very definition of sanctifying obedience. Paul is going to have a whole lot more to say in chapter 7 and chapter 8, um, helping us understand more about the Christian life. But he's given us a good start here in chapter 6. And I'm, We don't have a whole lot of time to talk around our tables. We did that on the front end this time. Um, so I'm going to pray for us. And uh, Laura, do we need to take down any tables today? <laughs> How many do we need to take down? Six or nine? Nine. Oh, yeah. I'm going to put it on Laura this time. Uh, so if, if, if everybody can pitch in and just from... Li- you know what? Just take them all down. That's silly to leave three tables up. Let's just take the tables and chairs down, and then you can go to the service. But I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll go. Lord, thank you so much for... Uh, for this word, Lord, I, I pray that you would make clear in our minds anything that I said that was unclear. Um, would you help us to understand what, um, what sanctifying obedience looks like from the heart? Not perfect, but from the heart. That obedience from the heart would, would include confessing our sin and repenting of it when we do. That's an ability that we have that we can't produce ourselves by mustering up any kind of effort to obey a law. That's something that uh, the Holy Spirit gives to us as we, as we look at your word. Lord, um, thank you for this word and help us to measure our own, uh, take inventory of our own life according to this word. And thank you for the free grace you give us in Jesus. Amen.